Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, from verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the Gospel of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that as we um, think on the words that John just read to us, we're not just looking at a history book, we're not just thinking about uh, words on a page, we're thinking about your Son, our Saviour, the one who is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And that has a huge importance and impact on our lives personally and on the history of this world and the future of this world. I pray this morning as we spend a few moments thinking of the words that came from the lips of our Saviour himself, that the strength of them may impact our, our lives today. Please work amongst us now, we ask, by your Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, at the end of our service this morning, I want you to imagine that we head into uh, Christchurch City Central and we do a vox pop thing where we interview random people as they walk down the street and we ask them one question. We ask them the question, do you think Christianity is too demanding? Do you think Christianity is too costly? And we ask everyone that we come across in the streets in Central Christchurch, what kind of answers do you think we'd get? I think there'd be a huge variety that normally happens when you do this kind of thing. But my pick is that most people would kind of snigger at the thought that Christianity is too demanding. They'd kind of scoff at the thought that Christianity is too costly. I know a few Christians. doesn't look like they've paid much for it. That would be the kind of thinking. Seems pretty easy, Christianity. Doesn't seem too expensive or too steep. Now, perhaps the more thoughtful ones might realise that, oh, if I became a Christian, maybe there would be a few minor changes I'd have to make to the way I live. Uh, or maybe if I became a Christian, there would be the odd joke made at my expense in the office. But that would probably be the extent of it. And if we uh, wonderfully came across a few Christians while we were doing that vox pop, then they would probably say, oh, the, the price isn't very high because Jesus has paid the price. He's done it all for us. It's not too demanding or too costly because he's done it for us. And I would agree with that answer to some extent. So I think that most people would think that the demands or price of Christianity is pretty low, pretty minimal, certainly affordable. 
Well, for any who think that way, I imagine the words of Jesus himself would cause a bit of a a real shock at this point. There would be a jolt when you see what Jesus says about it himself. A bit of a bombshell would go off. Because the price tag of coming after Jesus or being a disciple of Jesus is seen on his own lips in these verses. Have a look at verse 34 for a moment where Jesus looks at the crowd and his disciples and he says, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. In some uh, versions it says, if anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now if those words are familiar to you because you've heard them a lot before, if they've lost a bit of their impact, I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to feel the sting of those words. I want you to feel the impact or weight of those words. These are heavy. You must deny self, take up your cross and follow me. We say take up cross as if it's simple and easy today. What did cross mean then? Cross was death. The cross was painful, shameful death. Jesus is saying if anyone wants to follow me, they must die painfully, shamefully to follow me. The price tag, according to Jesus, is high. In other words, you don't find Christianity in the bargain bin because it's cheap. You won't find it with one of those bright fluorescent tags where you know it's been heavily discounted. This is full price. This is expensive. The cost of coming after Jesus, the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, is huge. The question is, is it worth it? It's a hefty price. Is it worth it? We, we sometimes put a lot of money into certain things if we think it's worth it. Is it worth it? I want us to think about that as we go through this passage and see what Jesus teaches. Let me give you a little bit of an overview of where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at the reading in two parts, because it really is two parts. It'll be a help for me if you've got your Bibles open or if we keep up with the passage on the screen, because these are hard words of Jesus. We want to get it right this morning. So two parts to the reading. The first one is verses 27 to 33. This is where Jesus is speaking to his disciples as they travel around Caesarea Philippi. This is the part where Jesus is saying, who do people think that I am? And Peter says those great words, you are the Christ. So that's the first section. Then the second section starts in verse 34 and goes to the end, verse 38. This is when Jesus gets the crowds to join them, not just the disciples anymore. And he then speaks to them about what it is to follow him. So this is about Christians. First section is about what is who is the Christ, what does it mean to you are the Christ. Second one is what does it mean to be a Christian. So we're going to look at both uh, those sections. But more than that, what we're going to see in both these sections is the centrality of the cross. This is a spoiler alert. I'm revealing what I'm about to kind of surprise you with. In both these sections, you'll see the importance of the cross, just how important it is. So we'll look at the two sections under two headings. The Christ and the cross, verses 27 to 33, and then the Christian and the cross, verses 34 to 38. The Christ and the cross, the Christian and the cross. We're going to be spending nearly all our time on the first point, the Christ and the cross, because everything else flows out of that. You've got to get that rock solid before you look at the rest. But I'm just warning you of that so that when we get to the end of the first point, you go, really, we've got another one? No, 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 we've got a very quick one after that. This is the big one. So firstly then, the Christ and the cross, verse 27. We see Jesus and his disciples travelling around and then Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And the disciples give a few possible options. They chuck out a few uh, possibilities. 
However, Jesus makes it personal. He then says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? I want you to feel the change of that. It's a drastic change. If I asked you this morning over morning tea, who did New Zealand vote for in the last election? You'd probably quite comfortably and quite happily tell me that this percentage voted for National and this voted, uh, percentage voted for Labour. But what about you? Who did you vote for? Oh, hang on. It's a bit personal. That's a bit confronting. That's a bit challenging. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So I don't have to say what other people think about me. Who do you say that I am? I want to stop for a moment because this is too an important a question to move on from. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is the most important question in the history of the world. One day everyone will meet their maker and at one level it's this question, the answer to this question that's at the heart of everything. Who do you say that Jesus is? You. Not who do your parents think Jesus is. Not who does your husband or wife think Jesus is. Not who do you reckon your friends, what do they think about Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is? If you're here today and you don't know the answer to that question, you don't know really how you'd answer it, don't leave this building today without reflecting on it. Come and see me. Come and see James. Come and see someone and speak about it. It's too important a question to not wrestle with it today. Jesus is easily the most influential person that's ever lived in the history of this world. There's a reason that our world's dating system revolves around his life. He's that important. There's a reason that Christmas and Easter are about his birth and death and they help set the annual rhythms to our lives. There's a reason that it's his name on everyone's lips around the planet. People say Jesus or Christ either for praise or for abuse or a combination of the two. No one else has that. No one in five years' time is going to hit their knee against a desk and go, Donald Trump! It's just not going to happen. <laughs> Maybe it is going to happen. <laughs> Jesus is easily the most significant life to have ever lived on this planet. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Well, that's what Jesus asked his disciples. Well, it's good old Peter that chips in. And if you know the Gospels, you know it's nearly always Peter who's the first one to speak. That's why we love Peter. And Peter says a great answer. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Poor old Peter often gets accused of having a size 12 mouth because his foot's nearly always in it. But this time he gets it exactly right. Hard to think how he could have got it righter. You are the Christ. Now we've got to be clear on what Christ means. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ, Messiah, absolutely the same word. Absolutely the same thing. And it's not a surname. It's not like if we were living in Jerusalem at that time and we were trying to find Jesus in the phone book, the Judean phone book, we'd look up J. Christ in the phone book. That's not what it works. It was a title. It was a job description. A bit like calling someone Sally the music teacher or Bob the builder. Jesus the Christ. And Christ, Messiah, meant anointed king. 
That was the word. But for Jews, it meant more than that. It didn't just mean uh, any old anointed king. It meant a very specific king. The king that was prophesied in the Old Testament. The king that God had said he would one day provide for his people who would bring in the eternal kingdom of God and rule forever. That's who the Christ was, the Messiah was. This incredibly important figure. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And this is a huge moment in Mark's gospel. Because up until this point in Mark's gospel, no one's really been clear on who Jesus is. They've all thought that he was pretty wise. They've all thought that he was wonderful in some ways. But no one's really nailed who he is. The only people who've known who he is are who? The demon-possessed people. They're the only ones who've really recognized who Jesus is until this point. But at this point, Peter says, you're the Christ. And he's got it right. He's saying, you're the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. You're God's anointed king who's bringing in God's kingdom and who will rule forever. That's who you are. So it's a huge moment where he gets it right. Therefore, verse 30 is slightly surprising to me. Because if believing in Jesus, knowing who Jesus is and believing in him is the key to Christianity, and I think we'd all agree today that it is, then when Peter has finally got it right, when someone has finally said, you're the Christ, and he's bang on, what I would expect Jesus to say is, well done, Peter. You don't always get things right, but you've got this one right. Well done. Now go out and tell people who I am so that they can trust in me and have eternal life. That's what I'd expect Jesus to say. But he doesn't. Instead, finally, just as someone gets it right for the first time, he warns them not to tell anyone who he is. Why? Well, let's continue the verses and see if it helps us. Verse 31, we find that he immediately changes tack, or does he? He begins to teach them that he must undergo great suffering, be rejected, be killed, and then after three days rise again. Now, can you see why Peter responds the way that he does? You're the Christ. Then he says this. So in verse 32, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. But Jesus then speaks with incredibly shocking words. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now that is unbelievable. Again, if you're familiar with those words, I want you to pause for a moment and feel the weight of them. I can't think of Jesus speaking in more harsh terms to anyone in the Gospels than here. And he does it to Peter. Why does he do that to Peter? Peter's taken him aside. It's not as if he's publicly embarrassed him or tried to strip him down. He's taken him aside privately to do it. And he's saying nothing more at one level to Jesus than, I don't want you to suffer and die. What's wrong with saying, I don't want you to suffer and die? Why on earth does Jesus speak so strongly and call Peter Satan? What did Peter say to have provoked such a response? Poor Peter. He's gone from saying exactly the right thing to exactly the wrong thing uh, in a few moments. He's gone from correctly identifying Jesus' true identity as the Christ to speaking words that somehow sees him linked to Satan himself. Poor Peter, from champ to chump, like that, from hero to zero, foot size 12, firmly back in mouth. What had he done wrong? Friends, Peter had got the Christ wrong. He'd mis- he got it right that Jesus is the Christ, but he'd misunderstood who the Christ was. He'd misunderstood the nature and purpose of being the Christ. 
And therefore, he showed exactly why the disciples were warned not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Because Peter, and not just Peter, but all the disciples, and not just all the disciples, but all the Jews, they were waiting for a very specific Christ. They were waiting for a Christ like who? David, the one that the Christ would be descended from. In other words, they were looking and waiting for a warrior. David, the one who stood and slain Goliath. David, the one who defeated the Philistines and got the land for the Israelites. They were waiting for a warrior who would lead the revolt against the Romans and free the Jews and give Israel control of their land. In other words, they were after a mighty figure. A kind of all black on horseback, that's what I call it, but maybe today it should be a Kiwi on horseback. They won last night. This person would be God's uh, person, God's king, a hero. But Jesus has just explained he's got to suffer. Jesus has just said everyone's going to reject him. Jesus has just said he's going to die. I don't think Peter would even have got to the last bit where he says he's going to rise after three days because you can't do the first three. Jesus has explained not just that he's going to suffer and be rejected and die, but that he must. Do you see it there in verse 31? It's an imperative. The Christ must suffer, be rejected and die. Peter can't comprehend that. How could that be? How can the one who's promised to usher in God's kingdom, eternal kingdom, and rule it forever, suffer, be rejected and put to death? Peter can't fathom it. And if Peter can't fathom it, who knows Jesus the best, if the disciples can't understand it, who spend all their time with Jesus, how would anyone else, how would any of the other Jews be able to understand it? They couldn't put their picture of the Christ alongside someone that suffered, was rejected and died. They couldn't get it. That's why when you read in Mark's Gospel, Jesus always tells people that he's healed in Mark's Gospel, don't tell anyone what I did. But then it changes when he deals with the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes, where he says, go and tell everyone what I did. What, why the change? Because with the demon-possessed man, it's a Gentile. It's someone who didn't know what the, what the Christ was supposed to be like, didn't have a picture in their mind of what the Christ was, couldn't have misunderstood it and got it wrong. That's why. That's why the disciples are told here, keep quiet about Jesus' identity. Because no one would understand it until after the resurrection. No one would understand it until afterwards and then go, right, that's what it is. They would have been trying to force him to be the king they wanted. In fact, you see that in John's Gospel. In the feeding of the 5,000, when he's done that incredible miracle, what's the first thing that happens? The people try to force him to be king because they've got the wrong understanding of Christ. Because the Christ was to have a cross-shaped mission. It wasn't to come in on a horseback and run out the Romans. It was to go to the cross. The Christ had a cross-shaped mission. He must die. That's what he says here. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, but he didn't understand the cross-shaped mission of the Christ yet. It's why the miracle just before this passage is an odd miracle at one level, because it's the miracle where Jesus heals the blind man in two stages. Do you remember that miracle? It's odd because he, he puts mud on his eyes and the blind man can see, but only in a blurry way. I can see people moving like trees. Then there's a second part to the miracle you can see clearly. And you go, well, why does Jesus do a two-stage miracle? Because he can raise the dead. He can walk on water. He doesn't have to do it in two stages. It's because that miracle is a, an illustration of what happens here. Peter's got his eyes open, 
but he's only seeing things blurry. He's got the Christ right, but he hasn't yet got the full picture of what the Christ must do. He hasn't yet seen that full picture. The good news is he will at the resurrection, but he hasn't got it yet. But why does he call him Satan? Why does Jesus use that kind of language? I'm not always the best parent, but I've never yet called one of my children Satan. (laughs) Hands up if you have. No, don't do that. Don't. (laughs) Why that kind of language? We don't use that kind of language, and Jesus wouldn't just use it for, for nothing. Why does Jesus call Peter Satan here? Well, think about it. What is the main characteristic of Satan in the Gospels? He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. And that's what Peter was doing here. Peter was, in a very real sense, tempting Jesus with something that I think was his greatest temptation. He was tempting Jesus to not go through with the cross. He was tempting Jesus with, you don't have to do the one thing that the Christ does have to do in order to save everyone. And I want you to know this morning, this is... It's not, I don't think it's just a real temptation for Jesus. Hebrews tells us Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, so we know that he faced temptation. I want to tell you this morning, I think this was his greatest temptation. Do you remember the night before he died? Just before his arrest, he fell on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed to his father, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. What's the cup there? The cup is the cross. The cup is the wrath of God that he knew he was going to take. And he prays the night before the cross, if it's possible, please take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus wanted, he didn't want to take the cup. He knew what it took to save you and I. The cross was not something that Jesus was delighted to do in that kind of happy and carefree way. It was something he could be tempted to avoid. But he did it for his father and he did it for you and I. The devil had already tempted Jesus to take the kingdom without the cross. Do you remember that time in the wilderness where he tempted him three times? One of them was he tempted him with the kingdom, but getting it without the cross. But the cross is crucial for the Christ. It was his central purpose, his main mission. As he says here, it was what he must do. Peter was spoken to most so seriously here because he'd made a mistake on a subject of the utmost importance and he tempted Jesus to do his central mission, not do his central mission. See, Peter said and did worse things at one level, but here he'd got the crucial thing wrong. Jesus' death was not an unfortunate end to an otherwise glittering career. It wasn't a disappointing finish because he'd been doing such great things. It was his very purpose, his main reason for coming. It was the heart of his mission. It was the core of what we remember as we take the bread and the wine next week. It's the centre of the majesty and grace and love of God. The Christ had to die for you. When Jesus prayed, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If there was any other possible way for you to be saved, do you not think the Father would have taken it right then and taken the cup from him? If you could be saved by believing another religion, if you could be saved by just working harder yourself, trying to do more good things and trying to do less bad things, if you didn't really need to be saved because it's not that big a deal, Jesus would never have gone to the cross. But the Christ must. 
He went to the cross for two reasons. One, because there was no other way. Two, because he loves you. That's why he went to the cross. Now, poor Peter didn't understand that yet. He would, that's the good news. After the resurrection, he went on to spend his whole life proclaiming this good news. He totally got it about the Christ who must suffer, be rejected and die and rise three days later. But he didn't understand the cross-shaped mission of the Christ yet. He didn't understand it. So firstly, we see the Christ and the cross. Secondly, much quicker, the Christian and the cross. Verses 34 to 38. Now we're told the crowds join. So before it's just been the disciples, now the crowds join the disciples with Jesus. And look at the words he says to them. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Or if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is about Christians. But again, do you see it's about the cross? must take up their cross and follow me. We're back where we started. The price of being a follower of Jesus. Denying self, taking up your cross and follow him. What does it mean to deny yourself? I'll tell you what I don't think it means. I don't think it means giving up chocolate for Lent. I don't think that's it. I don't think it means you're not allowed to enjoy yourself. There are some Christians who seem to think that God has a perverse no-pleasure policy. Uh, you're not enjoying yourself, are you? Stop it. As if he, God's created everything good in this world. I love it in the, the beginning of the Bible, in creation, where God didn't just make fruit to eat, he made fruit that was pleasing to the eye, things to be delighted in. He's created pleasure and joy. So it's not like God's saying, right, you've got to deny yourself and live a miserable life. Well, let's think about how Jesus denied himself because he'll probably be the pattern for how we're to deny himself. Jesus denied himself not chocolate for Lent, not because he's against pleasure. He denied himself for two reasons, for the glory of God the Father and for the salvation of people. That's what he denied himself over. The glory of God and the salvation of people. That's how we're to, de- to deny ourselves. Now, I want you to think about how cult- countercultural the message to deny yourself is. This is why no one likes Christianity in the Western world today. Because today it's all about love yourself. Today it's all about fulfill yourself. Today the most important thing you can do is be true to yourself. Today the most uh, important and crucial thing is to express yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Hard to think of a more offensive statement to the Western world today, but that's what Jesus says his followers are to do. And so I'm saying to you today, because Jesus has said it to all of us, deny yourself. There will be aspects of who you are and what you're like that are not what the Lord wants, and you are to live his way, not yours. We are all broken in different ways. Sinful in different ways. The natural person comes out in various ways. And sometimes we excuse it. Sometimes we say, oh look, that's just the way I am. That's just who I am. It's just natural. If it's not the Lord's way, deny self and live his way. So that's deny self. But he also says, take up your cross and follow me. This is not just put Jesus first. It's more than that. Because as I said before, the cross meant death. The cross meant painful, shameful death. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when God calls a man, 
he bids him come and die. There's truth in that. It's death to self and having Jesus as king. It's death to living my way, as JBN wants, and living with Jesus as king and his way in every area of life. It means our tongues. The tongue that I use when I'm angry or to gossip or to lie or to create rumours is to be used for God's glory and for the salvation of other people. And it's not enough when I go, oh, look, I'm just... I just naturally say things without thinking. Well, think, if you should think. Uh, Our bodies. It means I don't just use my body. I don't just have this body and don't care about it because it was a gift given by God, which I use for his glory and the good of others, nor do I worship my body uh, and make everything about that body. I control it in a way that honours him and is good for the salvation of others. My wallet. I don't just do what I want with my wallet. I use it in a way that will honour God and be for the salvation of others. My time, my life, we live for him. Do you see how radical this is that Jesus says to be a follower of him? Totally radical. And think about the context because it makes it stronger. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people that were interested in him and that were listening to him. And he says, it's not enough to be interested in me and it's not enough to listen to me. It needs to be seen in the way you live. That's how strong it is. In other words, there's a cross shape to the Christian's life as well as a cross shape to the Christ's mission. I found these words very challenging over these two weeks. Us here today, I take it we're here today because we're interested to some level and we want to hear what Jesus has to say. It's not enough to be interested. It's not enough to listen. It must impact the choices we make and the direction our lives take and the actions that we make. It must affect our very lives. Because all that Jesus does in the rest of the words really is unpack what that means. Verse 35, for for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can someone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Do you see the strength of his words this morning? There's implications here, not just for ourselves, but our families. Parents, what do you want for your children? What do you put your prayers and your priorities on for your children? What good is it if they're accomplished musicians, or wonderful sports stars, or academic successes, or on a good career path, if they've forfeited their soul? Now, we can't control their souls, But our priorities and prayers will show what we're worried about for our children. The pattern of the cross must be the the pattern of our lives. The Christian life must have a cross shape to it. Jesus calls us to a radical faith that puts him and the gospel first. Not comfort, not personal preference, not the easy way, but denying self, taking up our cross and following him. The pattern of the cross is God's glory and people's salvation. I've heard these words this week and been uh, rebuked because I think the older I get, the less I want to rock the boat as a Christian. The longer I go on in the Christian walk, the spiritually flabbier, physically flabbier probably too, but spiritually flabbier I get. I balk at taking my faith too seriously. I worry more about the opinion of others, more about personal comfort, and less about my saviour, and less about the salvation of other people. 
Shame on me when I do that. Do you know what I should do at those times? Cast my eyes on the king more. On the one who went to the cross to save me so that that might inspire me to care more about the salvation of others. He's the one who went to the cross for you. He's that king. Too often my life has got a me shape to it, not a cross shape to it. If you're, here, if you're here and the same as me today, you think there's a bit of a me shape to your life, a you shape to your life, not a me shape, then today would be a good day to change some of that. Think about what you've got to do to sort it out. Do you have a cross shape to your life? Are there some things you need to stop? Some things you actually need to put an end to in the way you live and conduct yourself because it doesn't honour God and it's not for the salvation of others. Then stop it. Are there some things you need to start? Things that maybe you've put off but you know you need to get into it. You know you need to start doing it because it will glorify God and look after other people. Start doing it. Are there some things you need to, to change? We've got to deny self, take up our cross and follow him. And think not just as an individual but think as a family. Are there things as a family we should be doing? Are there things as a church family? St. Stephen's here that we should be doing as we deny self, take up our cross and follow him. The Christian and the cross. The Christian and the cross. Must have a cross shape to our Christian lives. So you've got the Christ and the cross, the Christian and the cross. The two go hand in hand. First one must be first. The Christ and the cross must be first. We're not saved by denying self, taking up our cross and following him. We're only saved by Jesus going to the cross. But then, once we've been saved, we respond and live in a similar way. And so we should. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is not cheap grace. It's not cheap grace at all. It was the highest price imaginable. The Son of God had to go to the cross to die for you to be saved. That's the grace of God. It's not cheap, it's costly. Well then our lives as Christians should also not be cheap. They shouldn't be casual or slack in their response to what it's been done. What he's done for us is so expensive and wonderful, we must respond the same way, denying self, taking up our cross to follow him. The question I started with is whether it's too demanding, whether it's too costly to be a Christian. And I suggested that most people today would kind of scoff at the thought of that. Of course it's not too demanding. Of course it's not too costly. I hope you can see this morning it is. There is a huge cost to pay. It's expensive, but it's worth it because Jesus is worth it. It's worth it because he paid the price. All we're doing is following in his footsteps. It's worth it because because of what he did, it's not just our duty to do this, it's our privilege to do this, to live for this Christ, to live for this king, the king who took the cup so that you could become a child of God, the king who took the cup so that you could become a son, a daughter of the living God. The king who went to the cross for you so that you could have God's spirit dwell within you. The king who went to the cross so that you could become adopted, part of God's family. You could have your sins forgiven. You could have an assurance of a future and a home with him. He is absolutely worth it. It's a high price, but Jesus paid it. Now it's our honour, our privilege, our delight to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow our King. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he did, the cross that was at the heart of his ministry.
We thank you that he took the cup for us. And Father, I pray that as we seek to now live for him, we would be all too willing. We would feel privileged to be able to deny self, take up our cross and follow our king. Lord, please help us as we think about what this might mean for our lives. Help us as we think about what it might mean for us as individuals, for us as families, for us as a church family. Lord, give us the desire and the strength to make changes where we need to, to stop certain things or start certain things, because we're so thankful to you for your Son, our Saviour, our King. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.